0: This is My Montessori Life, a podcast that holds up a unique lens to contemporary social, cultural, and political issues. Maria Montessori aimed to reform humanity by building a better human being from the start, preparing young children for a life of profound self-determination, empathy, and wisdom, everything to which an advanced civilization should aspire. The podcast's regular hosts are Barbara Isaacs, President of Montessori Europe and one of the world's leading authorities on Montessori, and David Getman, author of the teacher's textbook, Basic Montessori, and founder of the software firm, My Montessori Child, which sponsors this podcast. In this second of three podcasts on the theme of equality, Barbara and David are joined by two guests, Liz Pemberton, director of The Black Nursery Manager a company that offers training and consultancy on anti-racist practice in early years settings. Liz has become a leading media spokesperson on race, culture, ethnicity, and inclusivity for under fives. We also welcome Zainab Shamis Salim, founder of The Montessori Studio, a consultancy that aims to make Montessori more accessible to those who see it as elitist and not for people like us much of her work addresses issues of diversity and representation. Liz, given the events of last year in the USA and elsewhere, has society at large finally woken up to racism as an issue of great urgency?
1: Really interesting question when we think about what's happened globally, particularly in the US last year, there was an element of, I would say, awakening. Yes. But I think there was more of an element of us having to take note of what was going on because we were all stuck indoors. So the lockdown had caused us to actually focus our attention on the racial injustices that have been happening for centuries. Um, But I think the way in which it's penetrated the early years particularly has been very interesting. And of course, it raised a lot of questions for the intentions behind some of the work that I do and also some of the causes that I lend myself to in terms of opening up conversations or what I would commonly say is pulling this thread so I think you can look at it in lots of different ways an awakening for some um for others in in society or throughout the, the globe I guess just the reminder of black lives not mattering.
2: Liz I I understand you grew up in a a happy family home um, the eldest of three sisters did you perceive prejudice there in Birmingham as a child and
1: in in your from your um, the community and if so um, what do you remember of that? I think it's really interesting because my early childhood um, and in fact all of my childhood was extremely happy um, uninterrupted by the kind of interpersonal nature of racism as it were. However, I have a a memory of being uh, labeled as, or being racialized as black, and that happened in primary school. And that was really interesting because it was a question around why the the color of my skin is is brown, or as was described as um, different. Why are the palms of your hands white and the outside of your hands brown? And I remember a little boy racialized as white in primary school asking that question and actually making me think, oh, actually, that's that's a good question. Why? And and I think when the why starts to happen, it causes you to become inquisitive as children are. So you go home and you ask that question um, because the notion of being racialized as black was a, not really a conversation that was had in the home because we were all black, so there was a level of kind of that was just normal. That was just the way that it was. And when I went to school, I was Liz. I was loud. I was happy. I was funny. I was the gregarious one. I had lots of friends. Um, and so when this little boy posed this question to me, it started a, a trail of thought around this this why. Um, so I think the experience of being racialized as a particular, you know, a a group, it lends itself to just then you having that, that thought. So I wouldn't say that it was always on the forefront of my mind, but it certainly sparked a a level of conversation I went then and had with my parents. Um, so yeah.
2: And were, and were they, what was their reaction to it? Were they defensive or, you know, um, helped you to understand what it is
1: you had so from from my memory, I think it was just very much um seen as, well, yeah, you're black, you you've got brown skin. So again, in terms of of how we describe, so talking about me having brown skin, but being part of a a racialized group, being part of a group that's um commonly known as or referred to as being black, but I think What was central to my identity as somebody who was part of a black family as a black child was that my heritage was rooted in Jamaica because both of my parents were born in Jamaica and came over to the UK. So that before I was black, I was I was of Jamaican heritage first and having always had a connection with Jamaica because my grandparents were there going to Jamaica quite frequently as a child right throughout my my teenage years and my adulthood gave me another sense of self, another place that I could plug in. So it was always um, something where it was looked at as positive. So the the rooting of my identity in terms of my culture and, and my race was looked at as something that was quite positive. So My parents addressed it in a very positive way because it was how we kind of regarded heritage and culture um, and quote-unquote blackness within our household was always looked at uh, in a very positive um, sense.
2: Did your mother's nursery business, um, did she perceive any disadvantage because of it being, you know, owned and managed by a, um, a black lady or did it actually you know was it was the nature of the community you were in that it didn't make any difference
1: yes yeah so an awareness of of systemic racism structural racism when my mom started the business in the late 80s um she set up the nursery in an area called Bearwood which is part of a um a local authority um called Sandwell and Sandwell at the time had real i guess feelings of it very much being rooted in a working class, a white working class um, environment. So Sandwell was really made quite popular by the Enoch Powell Rivers of Blood speech. So the temperature of the area or the feeling was that they didn't want outsiders And outsiders were seen to be anybody that was not white, although there was a really big South Asian population and a black Caribbean population in Sandwell. There was a feeling of resentment or there was a feeling of not wanting anybody else who wasn't white coming in. And so it really set the mood and the tone, because I remember in the late 80s, the early 90s, things like um, a man from the National Front would commonly stand outside of the nursery and hand out flyers. Um, and dissuade parents and people from coming into the nursery because it was owned by, I'm not going to use any racial profanities, but it was my first early memory of hearing something that was quite derogatory associated to a, a racialized group that I was a part of. But always being aware of my mom having an absolute resilience and zero tolerance approach in that that didn't hold her back or stop her from doing what she needed to do in that she wanted to have a business She wanted to own a Children's Day nursery and she wanted to have something that would create the foundation for for the family, for her young family at the time. So it was a heightened awareness, I guess, of who I was as a black child, who my mom was as a black woman, but also an unwavering self-determination that set uh, a template, I would say, for who I then came um, or have come to be in terms of my vested interest in early years and, and equity So it was a really interesting time, David. There were lots of things that were happening, but I always remember her telling me about the struggles that she had in raising finance for her business and certain banks being really reluctant to give her a business loan in that early part of her setting up. Um, So anecdotes like that remain quite firm in the narrative of of the beginnings of the business. Sure.
2: Barbara, in your experience of... um other nurseries owned by um, non-whites. Have you heard any stories about difficulties that people had, either getting leases signed or, um, you know, getting the finance they need?
3: It's so interesting because um, I actually haven't. And I wondered if I haven't because... People were not open to discussing these things. I think that uh, particularly in England, um, having come as an immigrant to England in 1968, um, I have always felt uh, that um, discrimination of any kind are more covert Uh, or more hidden under the surface. So on the surface, people are polite, people are all very jolly. But when it actually comes to accepting people for what they have to offer and for the qualities they can contribute to the community, that then somehow surfaces uh, in an unexpected way. So you feel you are all right, even as a white person, but because... I have an accent. Uh, it immediately tells people that I'm not indigenous to this island, and so things would come up in slightly slight undertone, and I think this would be magnified uh, within um, the community, within the black community or in fact any community that holds together uh, because of their culture and because of their origins. Mm-hmm.
2: Sure. I mean, I think the, the 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 British culture is particularly protective of its identity. As one way to put it, um, I mean, I know that as an American, I'm nothing like being black, but well, it's, it was recently quite bad, actually. But <laughs> as you can imagine, but um, but even being an American, I, I feel that. Um, you know, it's my great, great grandchildren uh, will be, oh, you're that American's, you know, great grandchild. So, um, yeah, I think there is something in the British culture that's quite uh, traditional and, you know, looks as a long view,
1: takes a very long view. I was just thinking about the way in which um, racism is perpetuated within British society, because we think about an, an immigrant story. And I think Similarly to what Barbara had said, coming to the country at that time was around the same time that my mother and father both came to the UK. And that experience of them coming here was an experience that was um, built on a lie because they believed that they were coming to the mother country. Similarly, when my granddad came in 1954, it was also the same lie. And so when you think about Jamaica as part of a colony under British rule, um, you think about the way in which people were invited to come and then how they were treated. There's an element of absolute shock and horror because actually the, the notion of skin colour actually wasn't something that they had thought about coming from the colonies to the mother country. It wasn't until arriving in the mother country that they realised there was an absolute um, abhorrence and upset. And of course, as you said, Barbara, until you open your mouth, people are not going to know that you are not a quote unquote native I think that's why the, the, the notion of race and racism needs to be really explored, because no matter what happens, I can't take off my skin. Um, and also that that then starts the it starts the myriad of things that come into people's minds based on their own biases or their own prejudices, their own, you know, racist thoughts. Zainab, um, did you personally experience or feel growing up
2: in England prejudice against you and your background, in your family, your community? What was your impression?
4: Well, um, actually, my parents, um, my father was, so my my father's from Libya uh, and my mother's from South Africa. So we have a mixed heritage family. So um, not only were we not white and my parents came from abroad to study here, but they also had an inter- racial marriage and that caused um like many fold um not issues but you know there would be a narrative of the fact that we were neither one nor the other we were neither white nor were we so I have three older brothers so we were always kind of straddling one of the rows depending on where we were who in what whose company we were in now my parents are um very progressive, very well educated and came here to study and had a huge, huge community of um, mainly Muslims that had come to um, this country to study and, um, and from all over the world. So my father has friends from uh, you know, Sudan and Pakistan and um, we, we grew up in an incredibly multicultural world. Where our summer holidays were with my mother's best friend is Guyanese, and you know, and many people who had embraced um, a new religion for them, which which was Islam, but they had come from different countries, and but there was a lot of the focus was on the similarities and the bonds that would bring other people together. However, we um, my my father was heavily involved in the political situation in Libya, which has always been quite. Um, sensitive and we moved to well my parents and my brothers moved to South London before I was born and my mum said she just cried and cried and cried and she thought where are we where are we I've got young children where are we there are no Muslims here there's nobody that looks like us That you know that level of representation was so clear from very early so I think um By the time I came along, they'd settled quite well in my area, happened to be an an area where there were very good schools. So we all had access to very good schooling, but we were always clearly a minority and clearly, like my parents had to make a lot of effort to be within community. We would drive, our weekends would be driving all for hours and hours around London to go to West London to see Libyans and to go to East London to see South Africans. My mother's from Cape Town. And um, so we had a very colourful and a very happy, just like Liz, a very happy childhood, which didn't um, ignore any of it. Um, But my brothers particularly experienced, you know, real, real racism in South London in the 80s, well, the 90s, early 90s. And I think I probably experienced very... um, a very kind of, uh, subtle racism in which I became, uh, a vehicle to assimilate in whichever road I was on. If I needed to be very, um, if I needed to obey all the rules and be very good at school, then I could do that. But if we were going to a family gathering and we were wearing, um, not so much traditional clothing, but the you know, all the women would have head scarves on, and it would be, or it'd be a women's only event because there would be, you know, weddings or so that would be separate. Then you, 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 you walk another road of behavior and you learn very from a very young age ha, what is needed when, because you, you know you're not really, your belongings in your home, but everybody's, you're also finding ways to belong outside of your home. It was kind of like, well, yes, that's what, that's how it is, I'm afraid. Yeah.
2: Living in Britain, yeah.
4: Yes, exactly.
2: Thank you. Liz, you qualified as a, as a secondary school teacher. Did you discover, um, listening to young people uh, today, that they've progressed? Is, are things better um, in terms of their outlook towards race? Um in the in the current generation of young people than you'd remembered from your youth?
1: So I think whilst I was teaching, what became really abundantly clear was that the students, and I was teaching in a girls' school, um, were absolutely more racially aware and more racially literate. So they understood exactly how systemic racism operated within the school system and within the institution of, you know, of education. So... It was really interesting to kind of have conversations around how they would navigate the school system whilst realising as well that they were absolutely marginalised and they were absolutely looked upon as low achieving. There was a deficit model that was applied to them that they were aware of, but they understood how to navigate it. And I think when Zainab kind of spoke about access to education, it really kind of made me think about what those girls experienced and how they how they articulated that and how they lent into me as a Black teacher to, to be an advocate within the system, because they looked at me as one of them. So they knew that they would, I would understand, or they certainly assumed that I would understand what it was. And I think when we think about code switching and think about who we are in different spaces, my mind was kind of drawn to, you know, the concept of, of Kimberly Crenshaw's intersectionality, how we navigate spaces um, dependent on our of racial categorization, and our agenda and our social economic systems um, and where we sit. And when I was teaching, I kind of often spoke about these things with my students. My students spoke to me about those things as well, because we realised that we weren't a homogenous group. We knew that we weren't a homogenous group and we understood the power of individ- individuality, but also knew how Certain ways in which our identities intersected would allow us to access certain conversations or certain things. So I would say that although the youth of today are absolutely more, I guess, politically engaged, aware of how race operates in the systems of education and institutions, they are advocating more for justice and equity and are demanding for that at a a younger age. They will not stand for things. So whereas I thought, you know, and I'm 40 next year, so I thought, you know, I'm really progressive. I really stand up for what is right. I will not, you know, if there was a teacher in the school that told me I had a detention, I would accept I have a detention. I would go home and speak to my parents about it. What I found when I was teaching was that, If the students felt that they were dealt with um, in an unjust manner, they would deal with it in the school and they would challenge the teacher directly. That there was nothing around stopping them from challenging what they saw as absolute inequity. (laughs) And they weren't scared about doing that. And so that's where I saw there was kind of a change or a move forward towards standing up for what they believed to be right. Um, And in some cases they absolutely were. Mm
2: -hmm. Barbara, did you see this kind of change over the many years that you've been teaching young people um, in the Montessori method? have you Have you found that young people are more um, more ready to stand up for their their rights and their um, opportunities?
3: Yes, I think that um, generally speaking in, in the 50 years um, since uh, I have been young. <laughs> <laughs> or um in my experience of uh working with um young people they have uh become more entitled um they know, they have found ways how to ask for things that they felt were right uh, and i have also found that as a um adult education teacher, it was demanded of me to think much more about my responses to those challenges. Um, Because in some cases, I felt that I needed to accept the challenge, reflect on it and think about it. But in other cases, I felt that there was an opportunity for the young person to really reflect on what has happened. And this has this has often been in relation to uh, students' coursework when they would challenge the grade. And um, that had brought me to thinking what education is about. Is education about getting good grades or is it about developing knowledge and understanding of things? Um, in which case the grade is totally irrelevant because, uh, Often the students who scored the lowest have actually, during their course of study, made the greatest progress because they have really engaged with the topic in order to be able to uh, do better work for themselves. And also the understanding that when you choose to study further it is because you have chosen to do so, not because somebody else was expecting you to do it or because it was mandatory by law. And I think that there are all these little nuances which are important to explore when we um, work with young people and things that, um, I mean, it all requires a responsible response from each one of us uh, so that we are genuine in our support for
2: the young people of today. Thank you. The, um, I'm really interested, Liz, in your master's thesis, um, which was about racialized identities of Black children and how their self-perceptions affected their teachers' expectations of them. Mm. What, what was the premise mm. of your thesis? And after your researches, that you, you know, working on it, what did you
1: conclude? So I think it was... It was it was really kind of motivated by what I had seen in the setting that I was managing and also because my mother had got three day nurseries as a family we had three children's day nurseries all based in very different um, areas within Birmingham some more affluent than others some less uh, diverse in terms of race and culture than others and I looked at kind of Practitioner expectations and how practitioners would engage and also the quote unquote curriculum or the guidance that we were given by the government at the time and how that guidance was interpreted and through what lens. I was really interested in the premise of whiteness as a concept before it became quite popularized in the last, you know, two years. People are talking about whiteness, structures of whiteness, white privilege, white fragility, but I was really interested in how that operated at the time that I did the the thesis in the early two thousands. Around what that did to the identity of Black children or children who were racialized as Black, because that concept in itself needed exploring and needed unpicking. And I think when Zainab talked about the duality of her racialized identity, you know, that opens up another can of worms, as it were, in terms of how people process and identify. So when I looked at how the, the Black children were kind of navigating the space of early years, Whose behaviour was seen as disruptive and whose behaviour wasn't? Who was told to sit down and be quiet and wait for their turn to speak and who wasn't? Which children were seen as boisterous and, and this early adultification that was being applied to black children and which children weren't? And how the lens through which we saw childhood was marred and shaped by racism. Because we can talk about, I guess, unconscious bias all we want, but there needs to become a time where things become quite conscious and that can only happen when we have conversations and open those things out. And so when I started looking at the thesis and started looking at the research and the study, I was finding a pattern that was reproducing, reproducing itself all the time around who was labelled what and what negative associations was, was given to children racialized as just non-whites, actually. <laughs> and, and then when we looked at those intersections around religion and culture, so who was visibly Muslim? And what does the hypervisibility of of, uh, being Muslim mean? So if you were coming in from a family who spoke a different language at home or a child who was multilingual, how was that regarded? If you were a child that was coming in, I remember there was a child that I was looking at whose family was Vietnamese. So the assumption of this model minority myth, what that did to children of East and Southeast Asian heritage how those children were perceived in comparison to those children who were racialized as black. And it opened up so many conversations around practitioners' engagement, practitioners who were racialized as white, but also conversations for practitioners who were racialized as black, because then we got into conversations around colorism. We got into conversations around, um, again, like white supremacy. So, you know, the, the lighter you are, the more desirable you are, the more cute you are. And that, in Infers a different level of engagement and behavior, and so again, I always looked at, as I said, this adult, the adultification um, element of, of black childhood, um, the myth of misbehavior, if we want to create an environment where joy should be celebrated and every child has the right to joy, every child has the right to a childhood. But which children, actually? because when we started digging down, there were some children that didn't have a right for joy because they were seen as the troublemakers. And so, again, all of these things, you know, I made links to racialized identities because I saw it played out in wider society as well. And, of course, my own lived experience as a black woman, you know, being a part of a community um, that was, you know, looked at the diaspora of blackness. So not just being black Caribbean or black of Jamaican heritage, but, you know, as Zainab said, which is really interesting, made me think, what did it mean if you were black and Sudanese or were you just looked at as black and African? So there were so many different elements of that, but it was that thread that I had to keep on pulling, David, and it's led me to this thread that I'm still pulling now in 2021. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But it opens up these conversations about expectation and then relating to me, what is the expectation of me as a black woman, as an early years educator, as an early years professional, as a trainer, as a consultant, who labels herself the black nursery manager, looking at anti-racism, how is that perceived within still Overwhelmingly white spaces who are making decisions about all of our children. It concerns me. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing how
2: it's a lifelong task, really, isn't it? These mm-hmm. uh, dealing with these issues. And, and what you said is that the conversation is at the heart of it. And as Barbara lo- loves to remind us all, it's the listening, listening to each other, listening to children, listening to the unique experiences that everyone brings. Even the little two and three year olds are bringing a unique perspective, and, and it's the listening that helps us um, to progress as well.
4: You know I, I, you know, I really, so much of what, what Liz says resonates because you, um, if you're uh, growing up in London or Birmingham or the UK, you, and if you, you experience a non white life or home life, or so much of your world is about observing and then listening. you you always put in the position of listen, you listen to what the mainstream narrative is and all the textbooks and all the written um, reference is all mainly from a middle-class white child's voice. What's that child's experience or that young person's experience? And, and where do you, are you subnormal or are you out of the norm or, you know, One of the things I really liked about Montessori was very early on was a redefinition of the norm and what normal means. And it doesn't mean the normal being the the level in which everyone is measured against. It's about each child has their norm in which they are their best, happiest, most settled self. And that is the norm for that child. So, uh, you know, I remember as as a young child or even you know it's taken a lot of inner work of my own to to not always see myself as observing but actually participating in what that conversation is and as liz said you know what you have to you go back to yourself and questioning where have i become racialized because if i'm walking into a classroom setting whether it's teenagers or young children what am i bringing and are they what are they observing being so absorbent and being so um in their experience of the world um are we is the narrative still this very kind of homogenous um, expectation of life being generally easy happy life is good for the middle class white child life is great holidays you go on holidays to places you you um, have a certain expectation about what your home life is like. But actually, the lived experience of so many children is so much more interesting and uh, may reflect that, but may not reflect that at all. And has, there's so, many more, so much more nuance that we can all um, take advantage of within a teaching setting.
3: I think it's so interesting um, that you both spoke about this duality of your existence being different personas depending on where you are presenting yourself. Because for me, that was the beginning of my engagement with this whole issue, because I heard a Black mother talk about her experience of how she always needed to be acceptable to the white people around her and how she was taught by her mother to be acceptable. And when I heard that, I felt so incensed that this should be part of a child's life, um, that I s- said, I, this can't be. And I was very grateful for A, my uh, upbringing in a uh, um, socialist Czechoslovakia where women, There was still huge feminist issues, but women worked and working mothers and working families lived much more together. So there was not that division between what the mother does and what the father does. And but also about who I was, I had a very strong sense of uh, who I am, and that was one of the things that attracted me to Montessori. That it allows each child to be themselves and that we encourage that personal development or we nurture the potential of the child to come to the surface this doesn't mean that i believe that montessori nurseries are devoid of bias okay because each individual has to follow their own journey to challenge the bias within us but in the message that Montessori gives us, there's very clear message of accepting the child, who the child is, and therefore the narrative of that child needs to be taken into consideration.
1: I think that what we see, though, in the development of Montessori is that it's still being perceived through a very white lens and through the gaze of whiteness. And that's why I was really drawn to Zainab's work in the way in which she thought about diversifying that because she realised that it needed to have a level of accessibility. And so when you speak, Barbara, about... Um, what drew you to and being in a position of listening, actually, as a woman racialized as white to the mother, uh, a black mother talking about her experience of code switching, that that becomes a very real lived experience. But then I think about for me, before being born, that my father made the decision to name me Elizabeth, my sister Emma Louise and my other sister Alexandria for that reason. For acceptance, because he was already acutely aware of what discrimination we possibly would face before we were even born, that saddens me, and it makes me think about these choices that black parents are being forced to make bec- to make because of a racist society, and that although he knew that whenever I stepped into a room I'd still be profiled and racialized, <laughs> he thought at least if my daughters have names that sound English they'll have a better opportunity at getting a job. They'll have that CV pushed to the top. Give them a good education. Give them names that sound English in the way that he perceived Englishness. And even that in itself is problematic. But that that was going to give us that little bit of a fast track if we spoke a certain way, if we had letters letters after our name. Even me in this incarnation of myself, owning my own business, being the leader of my own destiny, doing what I need to do, taking that... Blueprint and maximizing it tenfold. But this is the experience of many non white families, and particularly those children who are born of immigrant parents. There is still this need for assimilation if you are racialized as non white. So I'm really happy that you shared that, Barbara, because it again demonstrates you being in a position of having to listen as opposed to, you know, setting, um, setting the pace. Or setting the agenda, and and those families or children listening to you. So yeah, I thank you for that. It's, it's really great to hear that.
4: Yes, I, I really agree. I think the transgenerational load uh, is is so great, and really gets a very small um, amount of airtime. It's inc- it's huge. You know, like you said, before you were born, it just I resonate with that so much, Liz, because you know before we were born you know the decisions that that my parents made about um there are some decisions they couldn't decide like where we lived or um you know but then your names or actually uh, for, for my parents it was about um being clear about our background and our heritage and our religion because my parents didn't share a culture a cultural background so um even my mum coming from South Africa and that being you know, heavily racialized, I've had so many questions of people saying, But is your mum black or is she white? And my mother is neither of those things. She's what's termed a Cape Malay, so she's from Malaysian origin from the time when the Malaysians and the Indonesians came to Cape Town. But that question has, has been asked of me so many times. And we always laugh it off in our family. But um and and they'd say but was your mother always muslim or did she just become muslim to marry your father who is an arab and my mother's family's always been muslim so i think there's there's um this trans, transgenerational load which before you're even born you're born with this large bag of <laughs> vocabulary and and i don't think it's a bad thing you know it's very important healthy for children to be well educated in where they've come from and and that's one of the beauties of having a classroom with children with many different backgrounds, because you can share... There's so much to learn, and it's so rich, but it's whether it's actually um, that voice is a positive one or whether it is one of, um, OK, how can we manipulate ourselves to be accepted by the white gaze or by... Don't you think it's interesting to say this, yes.
1: sorry, that this... this um notion of in the UK particularly not having an understanding of the histories as to where and how people have become who they have become lends itself to the ignorance that the children are experiencing now absolutely I always say in common parlance you haven't got the range if you haven't got the range you shouldn't even be trying to engage in those kinds of conversations yeah you know you need to go and get the range understand your histories understand where it is that people have come from and why they have become a part of the communities or the countries that they now inhabit and understand the rich histories of those people. I had this conversation about, you know, the Haga people of China settling in Jamaica and the reason why there will always be a Mr. Chin who owns the hardware store in Portland, in Jamaica, the parish of, you know, a parish in Jamaica. There is always being a Chinese presence in Jamaica, in the Caribbean. We know this. We know about the transatlantic slave trade, but we also need to know about the indentured servants who were told that they needed to leave China to come to the Caribbean to continue that manual labour as to why we are now here and understand that the motto of Jamaica is out of many one people, for instance. But having that conversation now with British born Chinese people is, is so important that as a black woman of Jamaican heritage speaking to British-born Chinese people who are of a similar age to me, that we talk about those histories and the way in which our histories are intertwined.
3: In that context, it's really interesting that those histories are always manipulated by those who rule to serve their own purpose uh, instead of letting them flow as they happened. And I, I, I find that really, really fascinating. And for me, the history is what makes you or me- what makes each one of us. Uh, it gives us uh, characteristics and uh, teaches us how to cope with the world. I think
4: an, Im- an immediate, um, you know, that is such a great point, you know, Barbara, because an immediate, we can all um, action that exact thing immediately by, um having in our classrooms a space in which like liz said you know ch- children who are black or children who've who may come from low income families or are not told to be more quiet and and sit back down and i'll ask you in a minute because you always you know it you actually that's where those are the those are the voices that then become the people who write the history but those are often the voices who get sent out of class for being too fidgety, sent out of class for being too noisy, then they go into detention because the system is such that you challenge too much, you go into detention. And and actually, you lose out on that incredible um, access to experience which can lend itself to writing and rewriting history, which is much more representational of so many people's experience. And it starts from such a young age um, as to what children are allowed to, how they're allowed to question and what they're allowed to say and how they can access the deeper part of themselves, uh, which has got so much to share and is is, uh, so invaluable to, particularly to the white British person who really would do very well from um, listening, like you say, Barbara, to uh, so much that that will then become the people who write the history. In not very long, you know, there are people writing books um, often these days. You know, it's, books are, have become, especially after the last year or so, books have become a huge um, way of, of communicating. So for me, it just it brings it immediately back to those early years and those young years where children are, Given the voice and a safe space
0: to share. Yeah,
2: speaking of white people. Um, so I'm pretty extreme because I'm uh, old, male, American, white. <laughs> um, so uh, it doesn't it doesn't get much worse than that. So um, I I have done a lot of reading, and um, one of the things that really stuck with me was that in 1968 in Memphis, Tennessee, there was a sanitation workers' strike. And the slogan was, I don't know if you remember this, I am a man. And it was simply those men declaring and affirming to the world their human dignity. And to me, that felt like a great encapsulation of the right response to racism, which is just the need to declare and assert and insist on your own human dignity at all times and in all situations. And this is something that I think uh, where there's a bridge between Montessori and this issue because that's what Montessori is about with children. It's giving them their dignity, their autonomy, their independence. And very early on, two or three or four, declaring you know, I am a person and, you know, you as an adult have all kinds of expectations on me and you as a government expect me to perform in certain ways. And, um, you know, you as a society want me to conform to certain norms. But I am me. I'm here and I'm me. And I think that's uh, you know, goes to the essence of why I think Montessori is a help in, in, in working through all of this.
1: I agree. Yeah, I think it's really important that we kind of look at the origins of of all of our great theorists within early childhood and thinking about, you know, these messages of, of Montessori from its inception. But then thinking about how that's been filtered through the lens of regulatory bodies, of local authorities, of early years consultants, of support workers, of health and social care teachers, of childcare teachers, because as it gets filtered through these many, many lenses, the essence of it is sometimes lost. And I think that's what we really need to be aware of, because when we're thinking about who informs early years practice, I often say we're looking at a lot of dead white people. So we're looking at Balbi and we're looking at Piaget, and we're looking at Montessori. and It's really interesting. And I, I think, gosh, should we also be looking at all of those people who have lent themselves to thinking about pedagogy for early years and early childhood? Particularly, you know, in the UK, who are we importing? In whose minds are we thinking about and reflecting on to inform our current practice for this current demographic?
3: Well, I think in response to that, Liz is: Do we really give enough opportunities? And do we, as earlier as educators, actually give the opportunities to people like you, Zainab, Stella, Louis? to To be heard and acknowledged for their efforts, and um, as you know from the steering group for uh, first to five matters, um, it was fundamentally represented by women like me, <laughs> old middle class, uh, grey middle class, and um, at the end of their career. Uh, I I always see that. Um, in every situation, any early years, I always say, this is not even representative to, of my classroom of students in, in college. I have got much better mixture of people than I have in this group. And yet we are determining the voice of policy for the years to come. So yeah, it is um, that we need to work actively to change this. And um, we need more people like you to
1: shout. (laughs) (laughs) But it's so tiring because the load is so heavy and I become quite um, disengaged very quickly because when I see conversations don't want to move forward, when I see that the power, the privilege of power is so held on to so tightly, you know, I'm one woman. I represent Elizabeth Pemberton. I do not represent the black community. I will be an advocate for those who want me to advocate for them. However, being in those spaces is so draining. It's so tiring. It's so boring because the rhetoric hasn't changed. And when I think about the spaces and now we're in this technological space where we're on Zoom calls, it's, it's just very normal for me to come up in this space and be the only black face with all the best intention in the world. Unless people want to give away that privilege and let go of that power. Nothing will change, Barbara. And I laughed because it was just so refreshing to hear you say that, because that requires a deep level of risk, I guess, introspection, but then uh, allowing yourself to be vulnerable enough and to be bold enough to say it as it is. Um, I am somebody who speaks very much from the heart. However, I am very guarded around the impact of what that does for me as a Black woman. I do not have the privilege to speak from the heart because the impact of that is very damaging. And I will instantly be seen as what Zaynab has spoken about, the problematic one, Mm. the troublemaker, the loud one. And I'm aware of that in very white spaces, particularly spaces dominated by white women. It's very, very dangerous and it's very violent. When I do my work in terms of my webinars and any training that I engage in, I always do an emotional risk assessment. For those who are engaging in the training with me, I do an emotional risk assessment and I send out a document that requires people to complete that so that I know where they are in their anti-racist journey. Because the violence that I've experienced as a black woman going into space is talking about whiteness. It's horrific. It's boring. But it's led me to ensure that when I come out of those spaces, I decompress. I'm seeking therapy so that I can unpack that and that I can do that as a personal Pledge to myself for self care. Because I think often in those spaces, Barbara, white women who at the end of their careers in the early years don't realize how problematic and how violent they are in the way in which they discuss and theorize race and diversity and equality and inclusion. And yes, come along and be a part of this. And you're a part of it. And you're instantly tone policed. The code switching happens. And I very, I'm very aware of it, Barbara. And as I said, it's a, it's a heavy load. Um, and so I, I really measure the amount of time that I spend in those spaces. It's not good for me. It's not healthy for me. And I don't want to have a breakdown. I also want to experience joy. <laughs> I want to enjoy being a wife. Um, I want to think about family planning. I don't want to think about the fact that as a black woman, I'm five times more likely to die. Before I have a child, then a white woman. I don't want to actually think about that. I don't want to always talk about race. However, society is telling me time and time again, these are the dangers of being a black woman in this society, in this UK in 2021. Things have not changed. They've not got better. In fact, they've got worse. Um, saddening.
3: Yeah. Uh, And that's in a way what I tried to um, say in our previous interview on rereading Vivian Gassin Paley's The White Teacher, because all the issues of classroom, exactly, all the issues of the classroom practice that she describes from 1973, which I, I was absolutely shocked, still remain in 2021. The black children, uh, children's joys not being recognized for joys and misread as uh, being naughty and all these kind of things. Yeah, it it is tragic, Um, but at least we are talking, which um, ten years ago we wouldn't have done, and I think that is really important. And yes, I appreciate the personal struggle this means for you and I was very aware of it when uh, I um, spoke to Stella and I was very aware of it in 1989 when we were master's students together Um, but it is important that you do speak uh, and it is important that you are not silent I think it's also
4: important to um uh, in the spaces where it is a all kind of white panel for those who who are on the panel to find the people to come and speak instead of the people watching i I've, I've often sat watching thinking i'd be i'd be so much better up there but who do you speak to and how could i do that and and nobody you know i think it's the owners should be on those people who have that space to
3: well, that that's what um, Liz has said. You know, it's still the white, grey, wrinkled women who hold the power.
1: Totally. I think we now are at a space where, you know, we are thinking about what early is, um, I guess, conferences or panels, like you said, Zainab, where we want to be sat and where we don't want to be sat, where we are seen as tokens, are our contributions going to be valued or are we just there as a tick box? You know, I think of many early years conferences that have happened in the last month or white with a token brown woman. Oh, if she's got a hijab, even better. <laughs> oh, if she's a uh, disabled, even better. Yeah. Oh, black woman. Oh, is she queer? Fantastic. Put her on. You know, the black nursery manager can't get blacker than that. Yeah. Get her. <laughs> So everything becomes quite tokenized. You can't help but think it's tokenized because the panel doesn't often look like just women that look like me and you, Zena.
2: So is the struggle against systemic racism, um, for example, in the U.S. the Black Lives Matter movement, is it strengthened or weakened by intersectionality, where you're struggling at the same time for you know gender, disability, other aspects of equality?
1: When we think about the Black Lives Matter movement, I have been so empowered and so impassioned by it because it's it's absolutely strengthened by intersectionality, particularly when we think about that as a term coined, as I said earlier, by the fantastic Kimberly Crenshaw. We look at how that is applied to Black Lives Mattering and the response to Black Lives Matter has been so interested within the early years sector because there is an almost um, a rejection of that. And it again speaks to the lack of education, the lack of racial literacy, the lack of understanding of the history of the oppression of black peoples globally. And so, of course, we need to make sure that when we're talking about black lives mattering, that it's it's all black lives. Those black lives who are Muslim, those black lives who are queer, those black lives, you know, who are able-bodied, disabled. We, We have to look at this because... That is the power, isn't it? It's the strength of not being homogenous and homogenized. Those differences absolutely strengthen a movement. But what strengthens movements like Black Lives Matter even more is the allyship and the understanding from communities who are not black, who really are looking at the human injustices because this is a social justice issue. It has been racialized, of course, because we look at the disproportionate ways in which black bodies are, are being attacked and, and killed, but we are only stand um, as, as powerful uh, movements if we have the collective voice. It means that if I look to the words of Malcolm X, if I look to the words of Dr King, I look at those words and I understand them and I interpret them within a UK context. Because I know that the work of Dr. Kindy Andrews speaks to me when he talks about the new age of empire. That speaks to me as a black woman. But I know also that Dr. Andrews is a black man who's also from Birmingham, who is of a similar age. So I get to reason with the icons of today, if you like, because some of the words that he, he writes are very powerful if i think about having dr stella louise's phone number that's that's phenomenal for me because i can speak to stella at any time i can speak to laura henry elaine mbe at any time you know she's got letters after her name from the queen you know these all are all things that they have and they hold weight and power in this uk society so of course intersectionality strengthens this movement that's what the movement is about but it must trickle into the sector it must. It has to. Otherwise, we're doing our children a great disservice.
2: And Barbara, despite the um, the white ladies on the edge of retirement, is it is it seeping through um, to the community at large? Is it is this as a movement really making inroads into the way that everybody thinks about the early years?
3: I think there's still a lot of work to be done. However, um, as we all know, because we have all worked with young children, this is the only way to begin. We have to start when the children are in their absorbent mind, when they are absorbing not only the words, but also the behaviors and the attitudes of the people whom they naturally admire and to whom they relate. So it is absolutely essential if things are to change for the future.
0: Okay. That's great. Let's, let's wrap up this episode there. So thank you again to Barbara Isaacs and David Getman and our guests, uh, Liz Beberton and Zainab Shamis Salim. Uh, Bye for now. See you next time.